This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice clinical podcast. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. Opioid deaths in the US are at epidemic levels. Fatal opioid overdose among injection drug users may be one of the highest causes of preventable death in the US. Opioids killed more than 33,000 people in the US in 2015, and nearly half of the deaths involve a prescription opioid. So it is well we might ask what is going on. And to help tell us what's going on, we have on the line Professor Jonathan Lee. Professor Lee is medical director an affiliate assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatric Medicine, East Carolina University. So, Professor Lee, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking you, what exactly is opioid use disorder? Opioid use disorders, according to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is referred to as the DSM-5, the fifth version, is defined as having two or more of the following symptoms within a 12-month period over a lifetime of somebody who suffers from an opiate use disorder. One of them is using larger amounts of opiates over a longer period than was then intended. And a second symptom would be to have persistent desire to cut down or unsuccessful efforts to control use. Number three is a great deal of time spent obtaining, using, or recovering from use. Number four is craving or a strong desire or urge to use substance. The next symptom is failure to fulfill major role obligations at work, school, or home due to recurrent opiate use. And next would be continued use despite recurrent or persistent social or interpersonal problems caused or exacerbated by opiate use. And the next symptom is giving up or reducing social, occupational, or recreational activities due to opiate use. Recurrent opiate use in physically hazardous situations, such as driving under the influence, but in this case, this would be using opioids under the influence. Continued opioid use despite physical or psychological problems caused or exacerbated by its use. Tolerance, which is indicated by marked increase in amount or marked decrease in effect. And the last symptom is a withdrawal syndrome as manifested by cessation of opiates or use of opioids to relieve or to avoid withdrawal symptoms. Okay, thank you, That's, that's really helpful. And how common is this condition? As far as how common it is, so citing from the National Institute of Drug Abuse, More than 130 people in the United States, they die every day as a result of an opioid drug overdose. And these fatal drug overdoses often are multifactorial and often include not only opioids, but also other drugs such as sedatives as well. According to a published systematic review, approximately 21 to 29 percent of patients who are prescribed opiates for chronic pain misuse them. And between 8 and 12% of these patients who misuse opioids develop an opiate use disorder. Approximately 4 to 6% of these patients who misuse prescription opioids, they will transition to other opioids such as heroin. 
And 80% of people who have used heroin in their lifetime actually first misused prescription opioids. And is there any particular type of person who can develop opioid use disorder? Is there any groups of the population that are more at risk or can this affect anyone? I would say overall that there are people who are biologically predisposed. So that would be based on their genetics, family history, as well as their environment of when they're growing up. As we've learned in different studies related to adverse childhood events, also referred to as ACEs, having significant trauma for certain patients as they grow up over their lifetime can predispose them to developing not only addiction or substance use disorders, but also other mental health conditions. So I would say on the whole, patients across all age groups, because they could develop at any time, whether that be patients who are prescribed opioids later on in life due to chronic pain conditions, or patients who start using earlier on in life, which typically leads to a more severe form of an opiate use disorder by their adulthood. Okay, thank you. And tell us what drugs are the main culprits? Well, I think part of this will depend on access. So for certain patients, particularly, I would say, who do not have to receive a prescription in order to have access to opioids, it it can be across what would be considered as pharmaceutical opioids that are made by pharmaceutical companies as well as those that are made in more such as clandestine laboratories by independent manufacturers. A lot of this is based on supply and demand. So sometimes people will go through a prescriber in order to receive opioids, such as in the United States. And then there's also other folks who will order it online. So the access certainly is a huge problem, especially in our age today where Almost everybody has access to the internet, depending on their socioeconomic status. Okay, thank you. That's helpful. And you gave us a good outline of basic diagnostic criteria. Can you tell us about recent advances in diagnosis, if there has been any? I would say that from the perspective of diagnosis, this is based on the DSM, as well as the International Classification of Diseases, For opiate use disorders, as well as other substance use disorders, the diagnosis very much is based on clinical assessment with a thorough history, psychiatric evaluation, medical examination, laboratory testing, and obtaining collateral from not only the patient, but also from family members or people who are close to them. There isn't a, let's say, one specific laboratory test that's going to make that diagnosis. It requires a collection of data, interpreting and um, making sure that the the data is valid as, as well. As far as advancements in drug testing, there have been, and that's been particularly useful for monitoring patients who are in continuing care, but also it's been helpful for the assessment phase, as well as providing the use of more advanced technology as a therapeutic tool so that we can keep people monitored closely. Some of the advances include not only in the urine drug screen technology uh, with point of care testing, enzyme immunoassays that are more rapid, having testing that's on site so that 
the patient and the provider can get the results uh, immediately rather than be waiting for days to weeks on drug testing results. And as other matrices are being developed for testing, such as for oral fluid, hair, and sweat, and, and other matrices, that's also made it, uh, I would say, easier because some people don't like to handle urine. So just having other options available can make testing easier, um, aside from blood testing, of course, which is another option. Okay, great. Thanks. That's, that's really helpful. What errors or pitfalls commonly occur in the diagnosis of this condition? Well, I would say that perhaps one of the potential pitfalls for assessing a patient with a substance use disorder is, aside from looking at the symptoms which the patient reports, and the observations of the clinicians look as far as observing the signs of whether that be opiate intoxication, opiate withdrawal, those are all helpful. Paying attention to laboratory findings, which as I mentioned, does include drug testing as well as blood work for other signs of um, dysfunction, is, is the actual additional legwork that's required with obtaining collateral information. It's not to say that we don't you know, want to talk to our patients, but it's very important to obtain permission to be able to talk to their loved ones as well. Because oftentimes the dysfunction that we're looking for based on the DSM-5 uh, highly impacts their, their ability to work in their home environment, to be able to take care of their finances, take care of their job obligations. So those things, um, the patient may not actually self-report it actually may come from the additional collateral sources. Okay, great. So so taking a comprehensive collateral history is important in diagnosis. Yes, um, particularly to look at the various symptoms related to the DSM-5 criteria. Okay, great. Thank you. And moving on to management now, tell us about recent advances in management. These are problems that are very difficult to solve because as soon as we find one solution to trying to solve the problem, then we discover that that particular solution may have downstream consequences that were either unexpected or that cause negative consequences depending on how it's used. So one, one example of this would be um, effectively providing medication management for patients in a way that's effective, safe, and that allows them to continue to come back for it on a regular basis so that there, there is continuity, accountability, um, and that they're not lost to follow up. So for medication-assisted treatment, which is one of the approaches, and it, it is uh, advocated by the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, as well as many other organizations throughout the country and throughout the world. So MAT um, can come in different forms. Uh, methadone, uh, certainly one of the most highly regulated in the United States, uh, provides a lot of accountability for patients uh, through the system of having them come in, uh, whether that be every day or very often throughout the week, in order to make sure that they show up for their appointments. With some of the recent advances with naltrexone and as well as with buprenorphine, they actually provide extended formulations of these medications so that a patient doesn't have to take a medication on their own on a daily or twice a day basis, but they can actually come to an appointment um, to a clinic where they can receive a medication, uh, oftentimes in an, in an injectable depot form, 
where they can receive a long-acting medication-assisted treatment. So not only do they get the accountability of showing up for an appointment where medication management and supportive therapy and counseling could be provided uh, all during the same visit, but they also, um, there's more reliability in the medication staying in their system over an extended period of time. And that could be over a course of a month, um, a couple of weeks, or even longer as they continue to develop these formulations. And I think these advances in management will will definitely be superior to just relying on a patient to take a medication on their own. Um, it would likely be more effective and safer as far as avoiding drug overdoses. And it also does provide, hopefully over time, uh, the ability for a patient to see that once they're stabilized on a medication and then they're doing other recovery uh, therapy, and uh, whether that be going to meetings for support, mutual support groups, uh, in the U.S., there's a, a lot of access to Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, 12-step meetings, that that's all part of their long-term recovery. That is not, not just the medication alone. Okay, thank you. And what about pitfalls in management? What are the common pitfalls in management? I would say that one of the pitfalls, again, goes back to the fact that um, we focus a lot of our attention on medication-assisted treatment. So MAT, certainly based on the evidence, as long as a patient adheres to it and continues to take it as prescribed, doesn't overuse it, uh, particularly for certain products such as buprenorphine products, uh, if they don't divert it so that they're not using other drugs along with the medication that they're being prescribed as well, then these medicines do work. So to assure that somebody is compliant um, some of the things that are done is to actually do certain types of drug testing to check on whether they are taking their medication, whether that be buprenorphine, naltrexone. So I think that one of the potential pitfalls is if somebody's prescribed a medication, we leave them to their own devices, they go back into their potentially home environment where there's a lot of other stressors, is that uh, if they don't have the, the continued accountability with a combination of uh, ongoing counseling, therapy, and drug testing, then the medication-assisted treatment on it by itself alone is gonna be less effective. And one of the other pitfalls that I see is that sometimes people will choose certain medications uh, for MAT and not be thinking about the costs uh, as far as how, how does a patient, how can they continue to pay for this medication afforded and also be able to you know, have the appointments for continuation of whatever MAT that is selected. So those are some potential pitfalls. And how long does a course of management typically last? How long does it take people to, to recover, to get off the opioids? Regarding the long-term management for somebody with substance use disorders, such as opiate use disorders, there isn't great evidence so far to show at what point in time should we stop things such as medication-assisted treatment. Um, there are certainly going to be patients who come off of it due to their, whatever reasons they are, sometimes due to their own choice, sometimes due to loss of follow-up to their medical provider. I would say for most patients, and this is just based on 
the evidence that we have thus far, as well as based on anecdotal clinical evidence, is that it's usually best for them to stay on a medication-assisted treatment, whether that be an extended-release formulation of naltrexone or an extended-release formulation of buprenorphine or, or even um, a non-extended form for, I would say, for at least a year, if not longer. What they show in some of the literature related to recovery from addiction is that typically after a year, um, some of the dopamine transporters in the brain, as well as the brain imaging studies that they have shown, is that there is more recovery at that time in the brain, showing that the patient potentially has more abilities to, to not require as much intensive treatment. And with intensive treatment, the, the way that the National Institute of Drug Abuse looks at it is that for most patients that it requires at least three months of continuous continued treatment, whether that be in the detox phase, residential, partial hospitalization, intensive outpatient, as well as continuing aftercare groups and outpatient treatment. So I would say for the most part, these are ongoing treatments that are going to last for at least three months continuously. But I would advocate that even beyond that, because if they're going to stay on a medication-assisted treatment, they're going to need to stay engaged not only with the medical provider, but also with whoever's providing the therapy and counseling. Beyond that, there is some evidence to show that for certain substance use disorders, that closer to five years is when people tend to, if they've been continuously abstinent and sober from the drugs that they've, um, that they've had issues with then they tend to have a more secure ability to remain continuously abstinent and sober from alcohol or drugs. Uh, in, in this case, typically co-occurring use of other substances with opioids certainly does put them at risk if they start to use another substance, even while they're on a medication-assisted treatment medicine. Okay, great. Thank you. What other questions do doctors or other healthcare professionals ask you about this disorder? What have we missed? So Dr. Patkar uh, and I have, have worked on the BMJ opioid use disorder monograph together. And one of the things that he mentions is, is that it, it is, again, very important to not only engage the patient themselves, but also to engage their loved ones as part of the long-term management of a chronic condition, uh, such as opiate use disorder. So as far as taking care of the patient requires getting to know their families. Oftentimes, as part of treatment, is that families are invited to be part of the treatment so that they can participate in whether that be family couples therapy together with the patient so that they can look at the not just the patient's perspective, but the whole family dynamics of how a substance use disorder such as opiate addiction affects them all. And it's important to also address not only the family's concerns about the patient, but also to understand what sort of help do these family members need or these relatives, because oftentimes they may need help for their own issues uh, separate from the patients, whether that be medical, mental health, even substance use disorders of their own. It, it is very difficult to get somebody completely abstinent and sober from from the drugs that got them into trouble if the, if the person that they're still living with still has access or is using substances themselves. So those are, I would say, some of the potential pitfalls that could occur with long-term management and uh, that need to be considered for the patient. Okay, thank you very much, Professor Lee. 
And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better care for affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and rate us on iTunes.